Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, January the 23rd starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back senior staff writer at the Chicago Reader, Lior Galil. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what's going on in politics, what's going on in arts and culture, well, you should head to ChicagoReader.com because that's basically the home for everything I just mentioned. It's also the home of Ben Jarofsky. Find him at ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this No DNC Tuesday, and here's why. So the most unlikeliest source for some common sense, yes, I discovered a very common sense plea in the most unlikeliest source. And I'll start with the unlikely source being the editorial page of the Chicago Tribune. This is me speaking. I speak for myself. What a worthless piece of journalistic real estate, the Chicago Tribune editorial pages. No, seriously, guys, I can't believe you believe the garbage you write. Okay. Basically, it's like an homage to capitalism written by people whose company has been destroyed by capitalism. So weird. I talk about the Stockholm syndrome. Okay. Uh, and uh, very bizarre. Every time I read the Chicago Tribune's ode to capitalism by people who are surviving, hanging on by a thread. But anyway, that's the bad news. <laughs> Let me go to the good news. Uh, Cam Buckner, shout out state representative Cam Buckner from the near South side of Chicago. Good friend of the show. Always coming on. Always got something interesting to say. Uh, and you recall, he ran for uh, mayor. Uh, in the uh, 2023 mayoral race, and I get out of the first round, obviously. Uh, very common sense, in my humble opinion, essay by Cam Buckner. And shout out Lenny Monahoppenworth for sending it to me, because without you, Lenny, I would never have seen it, as I pretty much have given up on the, looking at the Chicago Tribune editorial page, unless some listener sends me a clip saying, Ben, you won't believe this. What piece of idiocy they've written lately. Anyway, Back to the good news. I always get sidetracked by the bad news when dealing with the Tribune. Uh, But at Camp Buckner, essentially, the theme of his essay is this. If the federal government is not going to help Chicago with its housing crisis, uh, then we, the city of Chicago, should tell uh, President Joe Biden uh, and the DNC, that would be the Democratic National uh, Convention or Committee, whatever one it is, don't have your party here in Chicago. Right now, the convention is scheduled for Chicago uh, in August. I've already planned to be out of town when it occurs. I want nothing to do with this convention. I wish Chicago never got this convention. I wish it had gone to Georgia, a swing state, where it really could be helpful. Uh, But beyond that, I just did not want Chicago used as the backdrop. 
for Joe Biden's coronation at a time when I believe uh, that Chicago has been used and abused by the federal government particularly on the issue of immigrants being bussed into the city of Chicago from Texas by Governor Abbott, the so-called crisis, which I call an opportunity. And uh, Chicago is, there's never been a meeting of the minds. It's, it's embarrassing, actually. You have a Democratic president, Joe Biden. You have a Democratic governor, uh, J.B. Pritzker. And you have Democratic mayor, Brandon Johnson. Why the three of them could not gotten together early on to figure out some plan of strategy to meet our housing needs, I will never know. Instead, they get together every now and then to make plans for their big party in August, which will be a disaster if we don't meet these needs. And by the way, it's not just immigrants, and this is the point, another point uh, Cam Buckner made, and thank you, Cam Buckner, for making this point. It's not just immigrants or migrants from south of the border who, where, who have housing needs. A lot of people who lived in Chicago for like 30, 40, 50, 60 years, whose families go back, I should say, have housing needs. JT has been saying this on this show for months. Jeanette Taylor, all woman of the 20th Ward. Black Chicago in particular has housing needs, has always had housing needs ever since the city of Chicago started kicking black people out of the city. Going back into the 90s. Yeah, yeah, we all know what you're up to powers that be in the city of Chicago, cheered on by the Chicago Tribune editorial board. So Ken Buckner, what I thought he did yesterday was very, or in today's essay, was very encouraging. A small but important first step. Lining up the needs of Chicagoans, people who live here right now, whose roots in the city go back for decades, particularly black Chicagoans, with immigrants. Instead of pitting one community against the other, which the Republicans have successfully done, instead of trying to make, what, black Chicagoans angry at the notion that we're helping immigrants, let's meet both needs. I know I sound like a broken record in this, ladies and gentlemen, but putting black Chicagoans to work, building housing, would be a great strategy and idea. Why is it taken some old hippie in an attic to suggest this? Why, why aren't the leaders of the city of Chicago suggesting this? I know I sound like a broken record. Lior Galeo is about to come on. He's like, Ben, I've heard you sing this song many times before. I don't care, Lior. I'm going to sing it until my I'm raspy. Ah. <laughs> I'm going to sound like Louis Armstrong singing a song. I've sung it so much. Ridiculous and absurd. We can't do both things at once and turn this into an opportunity. And the money is there. The resources are there. Don't tell me they're not there. We have, again, one more time, a Democrat president, a Democratic governor, and a Democratic mayor. There's no will. We're divided. We're hopeless and we're confused. And we've decided that parties are a way out of this, uh, this situation, like a big celebration in August. So, Cam Buckner, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for writing that essay. Jeanette Taylor, thank you, thank you, thank you for constantly hitting this refrain. If you keep it up, maybe President Biden, Governor Pritzker, and Brandon Johnson, Mayor Johnson, will listen to you and take the necessary first steps. We're all in this together, ladies and gentlemen. If we don't help each other out, we are going to sink. All right, without further ado, I bring on the great Lior Galil, uh, writer, editor, blogger, Chicago Reader Extraordinaire. Welcome back, Lior. 
I didn't realize it was an editor. When did I get that that uh, bump in title? I just gave it to you right now. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Haven't you edited something at the reader? Yeah, <laughs> many, many years ago, I was brought in as a contract part-time editor for the music section. Um, that was, yeah, that was my first, like, temporary role with the reader. That was more than just like, hey, I'll eventually land a pitch uh, with Philip. So, um, um, yeah, yeah, not untrue. So, yeah, <laughs> Unlike everything else I say, not untrue. Uh, <laughs> so, all right. There's so much to discuss uh, with Lior Galil. And um, so when originally I reached out to Lior, he had a riff last week uh, in his newsletter, which I just found so entertaining and delightful about the bear uh, and Chicago's obsession with being recognized by people outside of Chicago, that chip on our shoulder, that sense of, uh, insecurity that feeling that we don't we don't weigh up you know we're not real uh, that insecurity that chicago has uh is on full display whenever hollywood <laughs> does anything in the city of chicago uh and uh so i said leor you have to come on to discuss this and then itchfork announced it was the uh, what was merging with, I forget which media outlet. Yeah, Condi uh, uh, is folding Pitchfork into GQ. There we go. Yes. Uh, and so then I said, you have to talk also about the state of uh, music journalism. Uh, but then, of course, since uh, then, the ongoing slaughter in Gaza uh, has continued. Uh, there is debate in the Chicago City Council. Uh, Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez uh, Sanchez has announced uh, that she's going to hold back on her resolution uh, calling on the city of Chicago to endorse a ceasefire uh, in, in what, because of Holocaust Day. The meeting would happen either on Holocaust Day or Holocaust Reminder Day or uh, right around the time of it. Uh, and, um, and then Elon Musk wow, went to Auschwitz and somehow or other just well, I'd like Lior give his thoughts on this. So the reason why um, I'm asking Lior to comment on all this um, uh, Middle Eastern stuff and Elon Musk stuff and Jewish stuff is because the last time he was on the show, very passionate plea for a ceasefire. This was Lior win. This was like this, is the, this was within a week of October 7th. This yeah. was, I mean, as um, the government of Israeli of, of Israel and the Israeli military was gearing up to you know, bombard Gaza. Um, and I had no idea it would get as bad as it's gotten. Um, it's, it's really, um, I don't, I don't quite have the words to describe it, which is part of the reason that I haven't been able to really articulate myself in writing. Most of the time it comes out kind of sideways. It's heartbreaking. Um, nobody should be subjected. No, no people should be subjected to this kind of violence, uh, over the course of, of days, even, three months is too long. This is ridiculous. Yeah. I, I struggle for a word, uh, as well. Uh, and, uh, the reason why I always bring Lior, I asked, I don't always bring him on to talk about this, but the reason why uh, he talked about it last time is that he's relatives in Israel, uh, and, uh, something I do not have. So I don't really, I don't have relatives in Gaza. I don't have relatives in Israel. Anything I say is easy for me to say. Uh, it's different, uh, for Lior, uh, in many ways. Um, all right. So much, uh, to start with, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the Holocaust and how it's used politically in our country, uh, a very difficult topic, uh, for many different reasons, but 
nonetheless, it's something I think we should discuss. So here in the Chicago City Council, uh, Rosanna Rodriguez had a resolution, as I said, that would call for a ceasefire. She had already, uh, the reason you run the show last time was to because there was a showdown in the city council where Deborah Silverstein, the only Jewish uh, older woman, uh, older person in the city council, uh, was calling, uh, had a resolution that would just give blanket support to Israel. And Rosanna Rodriguez was saying, no, it should be more nuanced. We shouldn't just give blanket support to Israel uh, if they're just going to use it to uh, slaughter uh, Palestinians. Uh, and this is, of course, is in the aftermath of the horrific slaughter of Israelis uh, by Hamas. So here we are a month later, and uh, Rosanna's uh, efforts have been delayed because it would be what? Uh, unseemly to have this debate and discussion on Holocaust Remembrance Day or anywhere near it. Uh, your thoughts about this? I. Uh... I find that comical. I'd be I'd be laughing if it wasn't more, you know, if it wasn't so upsetting. The idea that Holocaust remembrance to me is, you know, uh, as a kid growing up, learning never again. Let's never again let this happen. That isn't exclusive to Jewish people. Um, and just because some of the people perpetrating violence on Palestinians happen to be of Jewish faith, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to talk about this. This the, the the legacy of the Holocaust is to prevent this from happening again. And I don't want to, you know, Ben, we're on the same page, so it's not like we're going to debate each other, but so much of what's been taxing emotionally over the past few months are getting into side conversations over language of how we're describing what we're seeing. What we're seeing, to me, is fundamentally wrong. The This kind of mass death on the scale that we're witnessing is wrong civilians shouldn't be dying in in mass numbers like this i want to live in a world where we can prevent that from happening and here we're we're having what is largely a symbolic gesture to call for a peaceful resolution and to have the holocaust be used as a deflection of that is i mean uh there are a lot of yiddish words uh that that we can employ to to describe this this kind of like uh dramatic irony that we're witnessing. This is not something that after all of the years of, of education of, of the Holocaust that I've, uh, um, uh, that I really, like, I, I, I failed to find the words to actually like, um, describe how the dissociation that I see, um, you know, like I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Israeli. I'm Jewish. My, Grant, my dad's parents uh, emigrated to the Palestinian mandate in the late 20s and early 30s, and most of their families died in the Holocaust. I didn't realize until many, uh, I think it was like five, six, seven years ago that my dad um, mentioned to me that his father and his um, mother's brother um, had, you know, uh, put in paperwork in Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, documenting the relatives who had died. And this is the only evidence that I have that they exist, you know? Um, and when I think about that, I think about all the Palestinians in Chicago who are scared for their relatives in Gaza and scared for the relatives who are in the West Bank, um, who have had to witness this huge machine at work that is actively destroying Gaza, uh, who've had to witness settler violence in the West Bank, um, and who have been unable to 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 stop it, and I don't want them to have to suffer. To me, that's what the point of the ceasefire resolution is: it's to stop 
another travesty. We've already seen too much death. If we can do one little thing to stop it, let's. Um, I don't think the, the you know, if you want to describe what we're seeing as a war, I don't think it's helping my family in Israel. I don't think this is going to help them in the future. I think it's putting, you know, the country of Israel in a great state of disrepair as, you know, the as all of all of its forces are focused on battering Gaza, the, the war may very well blow up and go larger. And that makes me fear for for their lives. But also, I think this fundamentally undermines the proposition that there could be a peaceful resolution anytime soon. And that is the only way forward for for everyone is to ensure that Palestinians have the same rights that I do, the same freedoms that I do. I haven't been there in close to in more than 20 years at this point, um, but I could fly to Tel Aviv tomorrow and, and not receive a fraction of the the harassment that Palestinians and you know Palestinians who are Israeli citizens who are born in you know the the Israeli um, borders since forty eight um, you know that they receive harassment too. I might receive harassment just for given the amount of of very public um, criticisms that I've aired against the state of Israel, but it's it's nothing like what Palestinians mm-hmm. receive. And to me, it's very obvious that the only way to prevent more war is to ensure that everyone is safe is to prevent this kind of mass violence so it's so cynical to see the holocaust being instrumentalized this way it saddens me a great deal um because i grew up thinking that we had learned as a you know as a society from from this really devastating thing but genocides have obviously occurred plenty of times since then i've you know i've been alive as they've have occurred and um it is discombobulating as a jewish person to see the 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 way that the holocaust is being used as a weapon um it's uh there are holocaust survivors who have spoken out in defense of palestinians who are suffering and criticize the state of israel how how does this support them it it doesn't it fundamentally doesn't yeah and on top of that we have the spectacle of elon musk uh at, almost at the same time uh, going to auschwitz uh the and um i i mean it's it's like a comedy it's like a dark comedy if i saw this in a movie i would be laughing it's like a Coen brothers movie and um what what I'm I'm on Blue Sky now. I've ditched Twitter. It's Blue Sky is effectively like uh, you know similar to 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 Twitter. And what one person posted uh, yesterday was you know if Paul Verhoeven put this in a movie, it would get criticized for being you know over the top. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Paul Verhoeven uh, certainly understood understood how this functions. Yeah. I. All right. So uh, Elon Musk just. Assuming there is somebody out there that doesn't know this, uh, the multi-gazillionaire, uh, maybe the richest man in the world. I don't know. I don't know what Tesla stock is right now. Uh, so it could vary from day to day. He's running neck and neck with uh, Jeff Bezos. Uh, and uh, nowhere on that list is Lior Galeer or Ben Jarofsky or anybody affiliated with Chicago Reader for that matter. And uh, so as uh, the wealthiest man in the world, he had enough money uh, to buy Twitter, uh, to force Twitter to sell to him. Uh, and at which point, uh, proving as though he wanted to prove that just because you're rich doesn't mean you're smart. He's pretty much destroyed Twitter. Uh, even longtime Twitter heads like uh, Lior Galil, 
uh, have abandoned it. The Pat Whalen st- remains, uh, but come on, Pat, you got to quit it uh, anytime soon. Uh, and um, uh, and what he's done in the name of free speech and liberty uh, is to essentially allow Nazis uh, to come on uh, Twitter and preach hate. Uh, at the same time, he goes uh, to Auschwitz with his good friend, Ben Shapiro, uh, and um, uh, visits uh, the concentration camp. And then afterwards, he says, uh, and I will now read a quote, uh, Lior, and then you're free to riff on the quote. Here we go. Musk admits to having been, quote, naive about the extent of anti-Semitism until recently, saying that that's because most of his friends are Jewish and he has had little contact with it in his own life which, by the way, is hilarious. You are so full of it, Elon Musk. I guarantee you that any routine Musk dinner over the years has been filled with all kinds of anti-Semitic tripe. Give me a break. Quote, here's his quote. In the circles that I move, I see almost no anti-Semitism. Almost no. That's interesting. And, you know, there's this old joke. I've got like this one Jewish friend, end of quote. No, I have like two thirds of my friends are Jewish. I have twice as many Jewish friends as non-Jewish friends. I'm like Jewish by association. I'm aspirationally Jewish. He defended his platform as a place where freedom of speech flourishes, saying that a free exchange of ideas is something that ultimately helps to correct hatred, noting that the Nazis shut down freedom of press. The overachieving goal for the X platform is to be the best source of truth in the world, he said. The relentless pursuit of the truth is the goal with X and allowing people to say what they want to say, even if it's controversial, provided that it does not break the law. End of quote. All right, Lior, the floor is yours. Riff away. Uh, I just want to ask, it's, uh, are the Jewish friends of Elon Musk in the room with us? Are the, you know, like the it's it's um you know it's bullshit claim that he didn't know anything about anti-semitism his grandfather was a well-known outspoken anti-semite in in south africa like this this is this is uh it's a it's a lot of horseshit and uh it's a lot of horseshit to say that at the place that he said it uh it's just a lot of horseshit to say in general when it's very well documented that elon has tossed gasoline on the fire by letting nazis back onto the platform by letting people who post um uh childhood sex abuse videos on x like the, the his his this isn't a free speech issue it's um you know he's he's not interested in free speech so much as he's letting people say the worst things without repercussions that's what his interests are that's what he you know um the that's what he rallies around those are the users that he is very often engaging with uh on his own uh you know uh account I mean, look at his choice of uh, person to to bring with him is is Ben Shapiro. Uh, it's it's less to do with Ben Shapiro's religion than it is to do with Ben Shapiro's point of view. Yeah. If if he was interested in free speech, where's where's the Jewish lefty? You know, like not that any you know uh, lefty would <laughs> would rightfully show up there. Yeah. Um, that's a uh, quite a quite a task. But um, I mean. Yeah, uh, Musk is not entirely stupid. This is a really good um, uh, branding moment for him, uh, which makes me really upset about the whole industry of touring 
uh, you know, sites where atrocities happened, you know, what's, uh, who does that benefit? Does that really help people? Is, is it helping people learn? Uh, I don't, I don't know, but in this case, it's, uh, it's embarrassing. Uh, it makes me want to take a shower. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that is much easier for institutions to be like, oh, he did the homework yeah. when in his day-to-day life, he is rallying around forces who are overtly or co- covertly anti-Semitic yeah. uh, and racist. And, you know, that um, uh, free speech is interesting and Elon is too dumb to be the person to, uh, to have that conversation or lead that conversation. And he is, um, you know, he is intelligent in some ways and really dumb in others. And the fact that he does not see how the power he holds holds a significant weight and and holds a far greater weight in in the dynamics at play when people do engage in free speech and look the the platform he's since he's taken over is is torpedoed not just because he's allowed nazis back on the platform but because it's choked up with ads he has you know his this this whole thing to do with pushing forth the truth i mean he uh ripped the um you know, I had a, a blue check mark, which verified that I'm a journalist by trade. Um, and he totally abused the verification system so that any now anyone with eight dollars a month can, you know, can be verified. And that just means to me that like, oh, you were dumb enough to give eight dollars to this. Um, it also I mean, and and there and there are real consequences to that in that it 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 produces misinformation. It gives it gives anyone with eight dollars um the, this this idea that they somehow are uh, are you know speaking the truth it 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 deceives the public essentially even now even even after it's well known even though obviously anyone paying with a blue check generally uh, is is as much a mark as as much a stain as it is like a you know uh, it it does put them higher up in the algorithm and does mean that more people are going to be able to see it which is another reason why people have been fleeing the website um, it's failing because of Musk's ideas like that's um he you know this is this is an emperor's clothes situation at some point uh it's just not gonna function anymore and it's going to fully collapse or maybe not or maybe it'll just like you know it'll become like live journal is now where you know it's popular in like three countries and the rest of the world has moved on but it's it's he's certainly done a great job at undermining the the potential and the real power of this platform. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that, um, uh, that is all true. Well said. And, uh, there's just always a moment again, of dark comedy when, uh, anybody who, uh, Oh God, I hate to say I, anybody who has, uh, let's put about issues with uh, Jews. Uh, let's just put it that way. Uh, tries to proclaim that uh, he or she is not uh does not have issues with jews uh and the, the obvious like kanye west comes to mind uh right off the bat uh i mean kanye kanye who you know apologized for his um latest meltdown in december uh which apparently torpedoed the release of his album vultures and you know he since apologized and then last week showed up in a photo wearing a shirt for burzum who if uh if you're unfamiliar is a neo-nazi who popularized the idea that uh, black metal, an underground um, subculture, is inherently evil and inherently uh, a white supremacist, uh, um, you know, culture. 
and uh, since then, it's it's hard to to strip the Nazis from uh, underground black metal, and that is who Kanye is aesthetically um, really enamored with. The cover of his new album, it looks like a Burzum album, and here he's wearing a shirt of Burzum after apologizing for, you know, uh, to, for what he said about the Jewish people. It's hard for me to to take what he's saying as anything other than you know um, trying to get a pass for continuing to act in the ways that he has and continuing to say hurtful things, not just against Jews, but against all people, people from marginalized backgrounds. Sorry. Continue. No, no, that was a great riff. And uh, yeah, I mean, just let that one stand. Uh, you know a lot more about Kanye West than I do. I, again, I told you this many times, really all I know about Kanye West is, is like the caricature that he has created, which I was, I've been fascinated with for years and years, but he just went too far. Uh, you know, the, the caricature of a guy who's clearly uh, on the edge, like you don't know how unstable he really is. And what's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? Yeah, I know. I know nothing about his mental health. I'm not going to try to diagnose him. I'm a music journalist. I have no, you know, uh, no medical background. Um, but it's clear to me that he's going through something and it's not he's not reacting well to it. It also doesn't make somebody anti-Semitic. It doesn't make somebody racist, but he is, his response to so many things, especially in December, when he had this very public breakdown that was broadcast was to blame our people. Um, and uh, that was, that was pretty, pretty hurtful. And in the same way that all the things that he said before about black people, about people from marginalized backgrounds is hurtful. Yeah. So Elon Musk saying, Oh, I, I'm, I can't be anti-Semitic. I have Jewish friends. Most of my friends are Jewish. So, yeah. And then he's hanging out with Ben Shapiro. Is that your Jewish friend? Come here, Ben. Let me pet you. I mean, the whole thing is so, it's like Trump schlepping, you know, Herschel Walker out. I'm not prejudiced. Here's Herschel, you know. <laughs> Damn, man. Yeah, it's, um, you know, good for Ben Shapiro for finally finding a friend. I was really, really worried about him for a while. Um, yeah, he he picked a real schmuck um, yeah. uh, to, to parade with him. Um, and that's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's comical um, and deeply sad. Uh, all right, let's uh, shift uh, gears a little bit and uh, come to Chicago uh, and we'll talk about the essay you wrote last week, which uh, filled me with such delight. I was smiling uh, and there's so much uh, other evidence of this, uh, but there's the TV show, The Bear, which is an immensely popular TV show. Uh, and it's about a restaurant here in Chicago and it inspires uh, so, <laughs> so much love. I, I don't know how to explain it, but like every detail, you know, uh, that the, uh, of, of a scene that's shot in Chicago, if they show a street sign in Chicago, if they show the train going through Chicago, uh, it fills Chicagoans with such delight. Uh, and um I've often just smiled at this in disbelief. I've seen this, uh, uh, this just a worship of celebrity from afar uh, that, that comes to Chicago and it just like keeps meeting to our life many times. And I just sh sort of shake my head, but you really, you, you took the deep dive on it. So uh, why don't you explain what really irritates you about uh, Chicago's love for the bear and it's love not just the bear the tv show but just like the fact that it's set in chicago go ahead yeah i mean i i don't want to yuck people's yums it's great that people have found uh you know a new television show that that they look forward to watching and and thinking about and i hope they think about it critically i think that's sort of where my um 
frustrations with bear bear mania lay which is that it's um none of none of what i see really tells me what should be interesting about the show um and granted i don't read a lot of a lot about the bear because there is a a great volume of material there every tv critic working has to write something about it because it's you know it's one of the most lauded tv shows now despite what you know i it didn't it didn't do much for me and that's okay um again i'm I'm not faulting anyone for for loving it but the way that it's expressed and the way that it takes up oxygen and takes up energy in the room when we you know we live in the city of millions of people where there's so many people doing really fascinating art um you know this paper so many of us on staff at the reader follow a single arts beat like that is our entire job day in and day out and that's for me you know my job my work is really nourishing i i have no end of things to write about that i care about and um it's you know uh part of it is like my desire to have greater conversations about how multifaceted this city is and the response is bear 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 you know i don't you know what um it's you know it's partially it is largely a um uh, professional anxiety of of my job as i see it is to encourage deeper listening is to encourage deeper thinking about the place where we live and particularly locally so much of the coverage of the bear that i've seen is hey new bear thing hey this this you know jeremy allen white is in something how about that you know this bear star waved at a camera like it's <laughs> it's um yeah. it is it is also an expression of of kind of the most shallow entertainment reporting that i as somebody who writes about music which um you know people will describe as entertainment though i try to show it in, in a more fast way uh that is that is the impression that i'm up against that is what a lot of people see that is what a lot of people view entertainment journalism as all arts and culture journalism as it's shallow uh, celebrity gossip and I think there's a place for that and that's all well and good but I resent when that is the majority of what we see um, and you know as I said in my essay I I really do get excited when I see like you know block club writing about the financial impact of a television show like the bear on the businesses that are featured in that that's fascinating that shows real world consequences that allows people to think about an, uh, a, you know a piece of art that they love in a totally different way. Um, and that is what good journalism does. It doesn't, you know, it, it encourages people to think about the story after the kicker. Um, that's, that's what I hope to do with all of my work. I don't know if I'm always successful, but I'm certainly not just writing empty celebrity gossip. Yeah, no. And, and uh, what you were getting at is, uh, is so old in Chicago. Uh, one of the oldest examples, I pointed this out to you and I've written about this and talked about it many times. It still fills me with uh, joy uh, is the, the fact that Queen Elizabeth came to Chicago in 1959, stayed here for, I want to say, 24 hours tops. And then when she died, uh, the newspapers had these stories like she was one of us. I'm like that lady couldn't wait to get out of Chicago. Okay, <laughs> She got out of here f- faster than Barack Obama did. And he really couldn't wait to get out of Chicago. Uh, speaking of someone who's from Chicago, but never <laughs> not from Chicago. Um, so, yeah, there's this obsession that Chicago has with people who from the outside sort of validate us. I guess that's what it is. It's a validation of Chicago. And you're right. Uh, when you pay uh, homage to that, when you feed that notion, it's not 
it's a different kind of journalism. I don't even know if it is uh, journalism. It's but it's it's different kind than what you're talking about. That's for certain. But I mean, yeah, there's you know, uh, every day I feel not every day, but a lot of days I finish the day and feel like I've failed because I have ten ideas that I want to pursue and I only have the time to pursue one. Uh, and that is, you know, that's that's a normal thing. Like I'm a human, I can only do so much. Um, so the great frustration that I feel as, you know, in, in this very limited capacity that I have as a person to serve the people of Chicago stories that I think are missing stories that say something different than what they'll see everywhere. That, that is, you know, always going to be an unfulfilled need. This is the third largest city in the country. Our media, um, uh, environment is kind of all over the place. Obviously the big institutions are still, in some, you know, the Sun-Times is recovering from years of mismanagement. Tribune is under Alden, and that's a, a nightmare to deal with. Um, you know, Alden, which sold the Baltimore Sun to, uh, you know, yes, uh, to an, an idiot billionaire um, uh, who runs Sinclair or who is part of the Sinclair family. Um, yeah, like media is in shambles. And what little energy that I have to be able to do my work, I want it to be something that as a reader, you will walk away being like, I, I haven't read this elsewhere. Or if it's about something that, that, you know, um, uh, other people have written about, I will have written it with a very, you know, specific perspective that you can't get elsewhere. I think I would like to believe that everyone um, approaches their work like that because everyone's different. And everyone has a very distinctive perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of bad journalism out there. Uh, there are a lot of, there are a lot of amazing journals in the city. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm overly critical of individuals. I think a lot of our institutions need significant work in order to properly serve, uh, serve the public. Yeah, no, I, uh, I always, listen, it, it's, it's just sort of the state of where journalism is right now. I don't blame the individuals. I think we're all more or less in the same boat. Uh, it's the state of where journalism and what drives journalism uh, which probably always to some degree or another uh, driven journalism, uh, you know, mass readership, uh, but to get those clicks and to get those clicks, man, you got to get those clicks. I mean, if who are the, who are the clicks for at the end of the day? I mean, does it, it doesn't help shore up ad money because ad money online has been dwindling for years and it doesn't, uh, if, if you are so often focused on trying to get drive by clicks, you are failing your, your core audience. Um, and I think particularly around here, there's so many people who have felt like they haven't been listened to in their media outlets. I think that's part of the, one of the reasons that Block Club has taken off so well is because they are so sharp about how they cover the city and how they cover, uh, you know, neighborhood news because they cover it with the same interest that a hard news reporter for the Tribune will cover, you know, a triple murder case. Like, and that's and you know that's the way that we should cover all news is is with the same rigorous care. Um, and generally most people do. Um, I, I don't want to diminish that. All right. Uh, and so I don't know if I told you this, uh, but, uh, I told my wife this, so I almost as counts as telling you that your critique of the bear, which I sent to her to read, uh, really reminded me of your critique of Lollapalooza, which you came on the show. Uh, and, uh, so why don't you uh, draw some parallels, if you will, between, um, Chicago's infatuation with the celebrity of the bear, as opposed to the quote unquote art of the bear. Uh, and, um, <laughs> uh, if the bear has art, no, I'm just kidding. 
I actually am a fan of the show. I just got to put great. that out That's there. That's great. Yeah, I'm a fan Again, of the show. I'm not, I, I'm I, not I confess that, Lily Orr. Yeah. I, I don't want to. One episode where we got drunk. Do you have any, uh, not to get real personal with you, but are there any serious alcoholics in your family? Just say yes or no. Uh, no, and I mean I'm I don't I don't drink, so you know, uh, kind of a question mark for me. So okay, well, there's this episode of the Bear from the second season. I forget how many seasons it's been, which rings true to any family where alcohol is an issue. Uh, and uh, so I mean, Bravo Bear, you really hit it, <laughs> hit it on that one, man. I said, oh my God, is this a documentary about my family? Uh, all right, uh, so let's go on the comparison between. Uh, Lala and the bear at the worship. Go ahead. Again, yeah, it takes up so much oxygen. I, you know, I wish um, a Lollapalooza does in the same way that the that the bear does. Uh, although the bear is obviously much more of a grassroots phenomenon. The fact that FX only put it on Hulu for streaming. Um, I mean, forgive me, but I don't believe that it was uh, initially um, uh, put up as a broadcast on FX. Like you know, this, there's so much material on streaming. The fact that this one show managed to take off the way they did, that is remarkable. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they, you know, that it's gone well. There are a bunch of Chicagoans who work on the bear and I'm really happy for them. I don't give a shit for me personally. I think it's a, I, it's not for me. Um, I hope everyone who loves it, loves it. And I hope that they can continue to find joy in it. Um, uh, you know, and same for Lollapalooza. I would hope if you're spending that amount of money and spending that amount of time at that place, you are getting a lot out of it. I've never had a good experience there. I've seen some good performances there, but it's uh, those performances are entirely because of who was performing and not because of the festival. And I would have rather seen those acts literally anywhere else than, you know, crammed in Grant Park um, with too many people. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's also because I am burnt out on festivals at large, but um, it's a festival that is only four days of the year. And yet that is seen as like the cultural you know, the, 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 the peak of culture in Chicago and it's organized by, you know, a company that's owned by the single largest multinational corporation and live entertainment. To me, that doesn't say anything about Chicago. It says about how this one company has managed to plant its feet in the city and convince people in power that it is a general good because it generates money from this for the city. Obviously, I'm not against generating money for the city. As long as capitalism exists, it's great that we receive some benefit from putting this you know, uh, awful event on in the middle of, of downtown, this awful event that does have significant influence over how bands get booked in the city because it forces them into contracts that prevent them from touring through parts of the Midwest for six months before the festival and three months after a lot of bands have found a ways around that because if you put on a four day festival with live nation money, you get 400 bands or 200 bands. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, praise be any act that finds a way around uh, those kinds of clauses. But the great influence of Live Nation as particularly as independent venues have struggled to, you know, uh, have struggled coming out of the pandemic, um, coming out of uh, coming to this point of, of the pandemic. Um, why, why give so much uh, attention to, uh, uh, you know, a festival that, that doesn't need it. It doesn't sell out as quickly as it used to. It still does. It's not meant for people who live in the city. It's not meant for people who can't afford $10 beers. It is specifically for the wealthy people who can afford the lavish packages, who, you know, who can spend a lot of money during the day, who are, you know, uh, 
get in hotel rooms. Like it is, it is a tourist driver. That is how it functions. It does nothing about Chicago culture. And I, I really despise the degree to which people in power suggest it is because uh, you know, at the end of the day, even the homegrown festivals are just one weekend. The people who make them exist in this city a long time outside of that. Live nation has venues all across the world. They have, several hundred artists that they, you know, that they book, um, the, you know, they own Ticketmaster. It is, what do we get out of this equation when we give more of our city to the largest multinational? So far, you know, Live Nation has not, you know, its its place in Chicago has remained pretty minimal. We do still have like a, a healthy grassroots independent venue ecosystem. Um, you know, Salt Shed, which opened last year, uh, or opened two years ago now, sorry, my sense of time is all over the place, is, uh, you know, it's a huge venue that is an indie-run venue. The Remova Theater, which debuted on New Year's Eve, in you know, it, it reopened as a multi-use venue down in Bridgeport. Indie venue seats, uh, I think, 1,800. Um, and and these, these spaces can compete, theoretically, with a Live Nation venue like, you know, the Aragon which is one of the few places that Live Nation actually runs in the city of Chicago. Um, but if you're Live Nation and you control the ticketing, you, uh, you book the artists, you know, you control the venues, you can, uh, you can squeeze out those other players. And again, fortunately in Chicago, the, there's, they've maintained a way to, to counteract that, but it's, it feels like more of a, uh, of we're in a defensive stance against this huge conglomerate. Um, not not quite the parallel that you were looking for, I realize. No, no, it's actually, there's a lot of parallels, and I could take it a little another step further, which I won't, because um, we have limited time. But boy, I just feel, when you were on that riff, I was like, oh my God, that's like economic development. It's like the, the White Sox moving uh, or trying to... To the 78? Yeah, move to the South Loop, the 78, uh, and get TIF dollars, get your property tax dollars to move out of stadium that they already got your tax dollars to build. They're still getting subsidized. Uh, and then what's that going to do for Bridgeport? So they, so you got Pat Dowley all over the third ward going, oh, my God, this is going to be great for my neighborhood, you know? And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about Bridgeport? You know, I, I mean, I mean, turn the, I'm not the first person to think of this, turn the, you know, guaranteed rate field into a permanent festival you know, uh, destination chance through his big festival there in 2016, you can, you can set up, uh, festivals and you could set up different stages in the parking lots in the area. Just like that is, uh, great real estate for a huge festival that doesn't take up public park space and doesn't push people out of their neighborhood parks. You're already rethinking things in a way that uh, people in the city don't think about it. So I give you credit for that. You should go be, you should quit your job at the reader, become the planning commissioner. Uh, and uh, but the does same it pay thing, better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does pay better. Laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I mean, we could throw uh, Soldier Field into the mix as well. If the Bears are going to leave, uh, then let's rethink that as well. And along the lines that you're talking about, it would be a great. It's just a great venue for all kinds of sports and uh, music-related festivals and, and ideas, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, maybe rethink everything. You're going to give the White Sox public dollars to go uh, to the 78. Well, let's, which, by the way, I'm not endorsing, just so everybody makes that clear. Uh, let's try to get uh, something out of it for the public for a change. 
All right, let's close uh, with a. I feel like this could be your next newsletter. Uh, it is so be your newsletter ideas. Uh, well, okay, so that was one. Uh, rethinking uh, White Sox Park. I think that's a great one. Here, I'm giving you assignments. I've never been an editor in my life. I'm already giving Leor assignments. Uh, but this one is something that just came out of your mind today when we were doing the pre-show, and I said, "Don't say another word. Save the riff for the mic." Uh, and uh, so it's that damn rat hole thing, which we've avoided talking about uh, on our show. I don't think anybody's comment on it. Uh, and um, so, uh, out of towners, uh, if you want to get a sense of uh, how Chicago views itself, like I said, Chicago, like uh, a celebrity comes to Chicago in waves. Chicagoans just fall to their knees and start shrieking like 14 year olds at an Elvis Presley concert in 1956. Uh, and so they was discovered uh, on a street, on a sidewalk somewhere on the north side of Chicago, an image that uh, looked like a rat. And people have literally lost their minds in Chicago. Uh, and it's been filling newspapers with articles and it's been on TV, et cetera, and so forth. And, uh, it's I, I kind of love you, Chicago, in your own way. Even I, I just don't feel part of you sometimes. Uh, and this is one of those moments where I just not don't quite get it. And then you go, Ben, it's no different than you rattle. You had like three in a row, the alligator in Humboldt Park. Uh, yeah, this is, the, to me, the Chicago rat hole is the Friday morning swim club yeah. of Humboldt Park Gators. <laughs> you know, um, I think I think what, what joy I, I got from reading about the rat hole and reading about like people's um, uh, reaction to like being enamored with this very silly like imprint of a, of a squirrel on the sidewalk in Ravenswood was beaten to death um, by <laughs> by just all of the reporting on it. Yeah. Like this, this inside joke became merched by Riot Fest like a week later, setting up a, a, you know, like a Riot Fest historical society marquee. I don't want that. Like, don't like get that away from here. Like just let, and, and the big story lately is that like very obviously the neighbors around there are like exhausted by <laughs> the the media circus. And yeah. I wish that of all of the media coverage of this, which like we're talking, this is in the Washington Post. This was in the New York Times. This is on NPR. This isn't like, uh, th this went national, which is, which is funny. Like I love an inside joke. I love a bit that goes too far to a degree, but I think it's come all the way back around and like we, we beat all the fun out of it. And it's become a hassle to the people who live there. That's that's a story that I wish all the reporters who are hounding the neighbors who live there had asked about, like had prioritized, because that is that is the angle. Like what happens when your backyard suddenly becomes a national news story? That's interesting. Uh, but again, in the same way that like how does how does joy and love for the bear manifest into something so dumb and boring? Um, uh, it's it it kind of blossomed in this really weird way that made me kind of tired you know uh we're 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 all multifaceted here in chicago we can be obsessed with more than one thing at once and uh maybe maybe if the bear had dropped a new season last week things would be different all right so i'm going to now expose uh how i am very similar to chicagoans in, in certain ways and then you can respond any which way you want uh, I roll my eyes in disbelief. And like the Friday morning swim club, we had a field day with that one. Uh, Ramana Hussein and uh, I, we, we beat that one <laughs> pretty good this summer. Like thousands of people going to the uh, lakefront uh, to jump in the, at the same time. Uh, then all of a sudden they realize, oh, my God, this is dangerous because there's only like one uh, <laughs> one ladder to get out of here. Uh, no lifeguard. No lifeguard. No nothing. <laughs> But listen, yeah, I, I got to tell you, man, 
when it comes to sports, I'm the, I'm just like a like some guy going crazy over that little little squirrel image on the sidewalk. I get so excited. Like my beloved Bulls won on Saturday. I was at the game. I don't know if you know this, but I'm not making this up, Lior. It was Frankie Knuckles night at. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was at, it was uh, Pride night, and they had DJ Lady D was spinning, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I know about it. And so the place was going nuts. I was going. I don't even really like house music. I was going nuts. Uh, they gave away hats. I was just like the happiest little Bulls fan in the world. Uh, and then I I watch uh, Detroit win. And I look at all the people in Detroit. They're so happy about the, the Lions. And Calvin Johnson came back. And, and I just felt like, oh, man, that is so great for Detroit. You know, your football team is winning. And I'm rooting for you, Detroit, even though I really don't like the Lions. But at this moment, I'm really rooting for it. So I'm not that dissimilar from folks who just get so excited about the little squirrel thing. It's just a different thing that gets me going. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, again, I don't want to yuck anyone's yums. Uh, I love, I love when, you know, a weird little, um, little bit of, of like an in-joke when like a a weird little bit of culture suddenly catches on with the people that the in-joke wasn't made for. You know, I, I dedicate my whole job to tracking down like weird niche subcultures and write about why I find it interesting and hope that other people are interested in it. Um, and sometimes that can have, uh, you know, um, uh, a real consequences like it you know other people end up really getting into it and, and getting into the culture but it's you know um there, there's something interesting to me about how and just because i'm a journalist i think about it in terms of how the media reflects and and has the potential to blow something up yeah the friday morning swim club stuff like by reporting on what was essentially like a, a subcultural event that didn't need city approval because most the city wasn't aware that it, it happened it made it made a thing grow into something that its creators couldn't quite uh, handle. And that's, you know, that's weird and frustrating. I, I have mixed feelings about that uh, Friday morning swim club as a phenomenon, Uh, obviously like as so many other reporters of color pointed out, and I agree with them. If this was, if this didn't happen on the North side, if the majority of the crowd was not white people, would this have had the same received the same kind of like celebratory reaction from people in the city? Uh, Probably not. Um, uh, but you know, that's, that's, that's an aside there's, you know, uh, again, I think about like what happens when, when media takes hold of, of like an interesting human interest story and just hammers away at it. Uh, and granted, that's not to say that this stuff wouldn't have blown up anyway, that the initial, um, draw for the rat hole was a Twitter post, like social media amplifies this stuff to a crazy degree and often you know institutions are left catching up days or weeks later like all the rat hole stuff felt like you know it felt stale by the time the sun times published anything it's and as as it should be it doesn't feel like it's meant for the kind of media attention that that it captured and obviously the consequences of that are the neighbors are posting on reddit like please leave us alone i'm scared that i'm scared that just by posting this i will get a a brick thrown into my front window and that sucks that sucks why can't we be normal about about anything um uh yeah it's it's frustrating but uh you know in in general i also have mixed feelings about like spending reporting time on things that are viral um which kind of takes away from any time spent chasing down 
stories that exist outside of the internet and outside of the influence of social media, which to me are much more rewarding and enriching to report on and to read about. Um, I think one of my favorite sometimes stories from last year was about the, um, the elevators in the, uh, the fine arts building downtown, um, basically going out of, uh, like they're, they're going to be put out to pasture, which is too bad because the, that those are really fun. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a story that I love. Uh, by the way, that's a great line. Why can't we be normal about anything? I just wrote that down. Uh, <laughs> and I'll be pondering that as I go for a walk later today through the mush and slush of Chicago. Uh, Lior, it's blast talking to you. We didn't really get into the state of journalism, uh, which pitchfork, although I feel like you talked about the state of journalism so much, but go ahead. You got something to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pitchfork wasn't the only thing that, that got thrown under the bus last week. Sports Illustrated, Sports Illustrated laying off most of its staff because of some like archaic licensing thing that I don't know, understand. And then the LA times staff their first walkout uh, against cuts. And today, a lot of staffers, I think 115 editorial workers were laid off via uh, like a Zoom meeting. Don't don't quote me on that. I realize I'm saying that on a podcast, but it's it's grim. It's grim. Yeah, it's a very grim time uh, in, in journalism. And so uh, I hate to end on such a downer. Uh, so you got anything positive uh, to anything like that puts a smile on your face that we've talked about so many difficult topics in this conversation let's close on a brighter note got anything from anything leor well i love the idea that you might be getting into house music ben so uh <laughs> we should we should i i feel like i really need to nourish this oh and get my you. god leor i was i uh okay we'll end with this because i thank you for giving me an opportunity to say this so yeah i was at the bulls game uh this saturday it was uh and as leor said it was pride night uh and they gave away the coolest hats like i need another bulls hat i I'm closing it on 20. I'm like a Melda Marcos with bulls hats. I need help. Uh, and um, it was uh, a shout out Alden Lowry. Uh, that's who I went with. Uh, we had too much fun. Uh, and when they did the house music tribute, well, bulls won. That's important. But the house music tribute was like hit me in a way I, I never would have expected. I was never a fan of house music. I went to one house music festival uh, in um, Jackson Park once, and as I was, it, was my, it the Chosen Few picnic? Yeah, I think that's what it was. I'll never forget it. It was so many, just like tens of thousands of people who loved house music way beyond my ability to love it. And my favorite moment of the house music concert, which is so embarrassing because everybody laughed at me when I told this, is when they played. Michael Jackson's Never Can Say Goodbye. Finally a good song! <laughs> All the house people, people were laughing. <laughs> I know, they were laughing at me. That's okay. Uh, I brought the light to them, okay? <laughs> Finally! Uh, but, Leor, were you at the game on Saturday? At no, no, I just, knew that was, I just knew that was happening because, um, yeah, I know a bunch of the musicians who DJ'd. Oh, it was um, awesome. It was absolutely yeah. awesome. The place was alive. I mean, that place came to life more than the Bulls. Even, I mean, Kobe White had to slam dunk where he took the ball from coast to coast that brought the crowd to its feet. That was great, but nothing like that house music uh, halftime show. Uh, the ben, we're, we're, knuckles. Yeah, go ahead. Ben, we're we're going to make you a house head by the end of the year. <laughs> it's gonna. It's. I'm. I'm going to work on it. Um, I just. Uh, I just got. There's this uh, New York nonprofit music and and publication called Blank Forms, and they just published 
they have a like a print um, magazine that's it's it's thicker than most books. It's 300 plus pages. And they're I think at least a third of it, if not half of it, is an interview with this Detroit DJ who's from Chicago named Theo Parrish, who a lot of househead friends of mine just like love. So I'm just going to send you a lot of Theo Parrish stuff from feel free. Uh, uh, yeah, feel free to send that. And then the night before, I want to tell you this, uh, since I'm telling you about all my new musical um uh, endeavors. Hold on, let me get this right. I want to get this absolutely right because you're not going to believe this at all. What I'm about to tell you. Ah, here we go. I went to Orchestra Hall and I saw Micaiah McCraven. Oh yeah, uh, Micaiah. Yeah. Yeah, and that was my wife went because she's really into new music, and so you know me, uh, Leo. It's a joke between me and Leo. I last new music I listened to was 1979. But this was not since, anymore. Since, no, man, I'm out there now. Okay, I'm up to 1981 with house music. Okay, uh, and this this was such a great concert, man. It was just it was just so beautiful, melodic, creative. I don't know what else to say. And I was up there way. Have you ever been a symphony? I don't know if you ever sat like in the nosebleed section. Oh my god, you're up so high. Everything is like shout out Mick Dumkey and Romana. We were they were there with us, and um, it's we're so far away. It, you know, it's almost, it's almost like, don't even pretend that you're like in the same space. That's how far away you are. You know what I mean? But that you can hear it so well. So what difference does it make? You know what I mean? So are you a fan? Oh yeah. I actually, I met Micaiah years ago before he blew up because one of our videographers who I got to know through the Sun-Times, his partner worked at Northwestern with Micaiah's partner. Uh, so we met, we met at a party and he's just like, such a kind gentle laid-back guy uh his music is so inventive and it's been a real thrill to see him blossom in this in this great way and and to just like get the kind of source to to just bring so many musicians together and flesh out his ideas he's he's a really terrific musician and and uh and one who understands how to blend a variety of subcultures together so that they fit and that they they feel like they were always meant to fit um yeah he's a great hip-hop producer as well as you know jazz drummer yeah so there we go we ended on a bright note a positive note about uh, artists here in the city of chicago positive note about music chicago uh and uh, house music in chicago my beloved chicago bulls so it's not all gloom and doom uh on the ben jarofsky show uh leor uh do a little self-promotion and then we'll walk out the door go tell folks where they can find you all that good stuff uh chicagoreader.com i've got a i don't know when this is coming out but my my newsletter for the readers daily newsletter comes out on wednesdays yeah just just finished off a new one just before we got on this call uh that's it i don't i I try to stay on social media these days my brain is a lot better for it good you are pat whalen you listen to that stay off of social media uh yes uh this show will drop uh later today tuesday so uh folks uh i'll spell you his name g-a-l-i-l uh, that's the last name, and you can, Lior L E O R. I'm reading it right off the. Hope he spelled it right. All right, Lior, uh, thank you very much. It's always a blast talking to you. Also, want to thank producer Chrissy. Does an outstanding job, and I think uh, Lior uh, will agree with me when I say, "Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody." And remember, you can always stay updated on what Ben's up to at ChicagoReader.com. You can follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.